Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey, and guest Joanna Rothman. Hi, Squirrel. Hi. Well, it's excellent to have Joanna again. We just had her last week, and she was talking to us about uh, her her uh, series of books, three books, Modern Management Made Easy. And we gave a nice introduction last week. We won't repeat it all this week. But Joanna is the author of 18 books, hundreds of articles. Uh, my One of my favorite books is Behind Closed Doors. I recommend it to every new manager I meet. And she helps leaders and teams do reasonable things that work. And she was telling us all about how she's written that up in uh, these three books. So uh, I thought maybe we'd just pick up where we left off. And, and that was, I think, talking about some of the principles that, that underlie the, the, uh, the themes of the book. And I, I wonder if uh, either of you guys would like to talk a bit more about that. Uh, absolutely. I, I think what I'll do is, um, so the, the three books of Modern Management Made Easy, uh, it, uh, Joanna, you lay out that you have seven principles. I'm going to read them out very briefly, and then I'll want to highlight a couple. So um, clarify purpose, uh, and I'm giving a shorthand version. This is not the full version. You, full version? Go, go read the book. That's <laughs> it's, they're, they're great reads. Uh, clarify purpose, build empathy, build a safe environment, uh, seek outcomes by optimizing for an overarching goal, encourage experiments and learning, catch people succeeding, and exercise value-based integrity as a model for the people you lead and serve. Uh, I feel we were just describing a little bit in the last episode about how uh, congruence with value-based integrity was something that was drove uh, insubordinate conversations, uh, difficult conversations. I would say really productive. Con we, in, in, in our book, in our, our work, we often talk about productive conflict, that if we want good outcomes, that means we want different ideas and we want conflict between the ideas, not between the people. And I, I feel like that's what you were describing. And it was, it was the uh, d drive for congruence and value-based integrity that would give you the courage and drive to have these conversations. And uh, I think that's where we what we where we got to in last in the last episode. But one element of that, and I think maybe this is a good place to go, is the element of empathy. And you talk about empathy in a few different ways in the book. One was uh, this idea of of empathy as part of congruence, empathy for the other. And you make the point you can have empathy without being a pushover. And every I will tell people every dialogue <laughs> of the myth sections. <laughs> show the, the, the speaker uh, not being a pushover. So that's <laughs> that's there. Yeah, but what you also say is have empathy with the people who do the work. Can you, mm -hmm. and, and that is such a key idea for, for a, a manager. Can you tell us a bit about what you have in mind about how, do, how does a manager illustrate empathy for the people who do the work? So partly it's about um, extending the guidelines and constraints and being really specific about those for so that people have the maximum amount of freedom to actually do the work that matters. So for me, empathy is about having people solve the problem where the problem is, right? Don't solve problems for other people, mostly because uh, if we are as a manager, I never understand as much about the problem as the people who have the problem. So th there's that. Um, it's also about how do we understand what estimates or forecasts really mean? I, um, I worked with a guy many years ago as a client who, who proudly, proudly told me he always takes 20% off 
all the estimates anybody ever gives him. And I, I said, okay. And he said, and this really works because they're meeting every single day. And I said, okay. And as I walked around to the other managers, they said, we inflate our estimates by 40% because <laughs> otherwise we, we can't possibly deliver what he wants us to deliver. So I did not tell him at that time that he was not paying me for that advice. Yeah. <laughs> However, um, I, I suggested a couple of other ways we could make the organization work better. And during those other ways, he actually learned that people were inflating their estimates. He was quite disappointed. And I said to him, You're, when you tell people how long something is going to take, you are not in the code, you're not in the problem, you're not in the customer, you, you don't know. But that means you're not extending empathy to the people who are actually doing the work. You're just demanding something of them. He said, oh, right, that, <laughs> oh, all of, all of us who were ever programmers remember the programmer refrain, oh. And <laughs> that's, the, it's also the management refrain, right? That's when we realized we were doing something we really did not want to do. So, and it, it, it extends to asking people to do more than they possibly could, right? 14 projects as opposed to one, right? It, it goes in many ways. And we have a recent episode, which, which we'll refer listeners to, on uh, um, uh, giving 110%, which goes exactly to the the manager who added the 20%. So uh, I was, I was uh, having flashbacks to that discussion that we had just a couple of weeks ago. So strongly agree with the uh, um, uh, analysis of how that comes to be. That uh, O in the book, the programmer friend, you described it as when you realize that the, the computer was doing exactly what you told it to do. It just wasn't what you wanted to tell it to do. And and I think here you're saying is you're getting the outcome from the people, which is exactly, they're behaving the way that you've trained them to do. That may not be what you intended. Yeah. That's why managers have to manage the system. Yeah. That, that's right. And it, it, and this idea then uh, of managing managers, managing the system, I think the, the principle you have that, that covers that the most is seek opt, op, outcomes by optimizing for an overarching goal. And you, it is a similar thing that you say, and I think this is in the third book where you'll say, uh, you quote, uh, and I can't remember the author you're quoting, who says, essentially every every organization is perfectly designed uh, uh, to, to generate the outcomes that it's that it's, it's yielding, right? You're, you're, you, you get, in other words, you get the output of the system as a function of the system. That's the, the Deming quote that I have well memorized. But it turns out many people talk about the same element here, which is in a sense, your outcomes embody uh, the system that you've built. And if you want to change the outcomes, you need to change the system. And, th and this idea of the overarching goal. Uh, can you say a bit more about that and, and the manager's job of managing the system? Oh, so I am sure that most of our listeners have either experience with quote OKRs, end of quote, because um, in my clients, all of the all of their OKRs are really MBOs, management by objectives, and um, they take so the supposedly amazing goal, which is not very amazing, and they roll it down to uh, what a person can do, 
And then a person's bonus depends on their little contribution to that goal, which is not really a goal. So I, the idea of OKRs are excellent ideas. However, the more we, we put people into silos, and I'm talking about managers, right? Managers might have, might support cross-functional teams, but if you have the dev manager and the QA manager and the UI manager and the tech bubs manager and the, any other manager, and they, they as managers, as a cohort, do not have an overarching goal, and you have to go up to the middle managers or up to senior le leadership to find the overarching goal, you're going to get um, resource efficiency, which is individuals working towards their little thing with not enough collaboration for the rest of the team to work together. Because I need to make my manager look good. How do I make my manager look good? By working towards his or her goal that goes up the organization and where they meet is way too far. It's all the way at the top as opposed to at the team level, at the manager level, at the middle manager level, right. And this, uh, what you're describing here, I think leads in great to a question I wanted to to bring up and one area that we might debate a little bit here. Uh, because what you're describing there, in a sense, was a, was a problem of hierarchy and these silos and not having the, the cross-functional organization. And I had asked you uh, uh, in discussing uh, congruence and value-based integrity, to me, that was a, a bit in an email exchange before this. I said, for me, it was resonated a bit about reinventing organizations. Uh, the book describes teal organizations. One of the elements about teal that I really like is people being their authentic selves, which I think for me is very closely tied to this element of, for me of congruence and value-based integrity. And uh, you had said back, one of the things you didn't like about it was they, uh, the idea that you could uh, not, that you wouldn't need managers, that you don't need a role of manager. So I'd like just a moment of that. So we talk about the role of a manager's job is managing the system of work. That's a that's a job of management, uh, perhaps, rather than managers. Can we distinguish the the work to be done, the value added work to be done of managing the system of work to to be analyzing and understanding the system that exists and optimizing that system? Can we separate that from the hierarchical role that where we give people the title of manager? Is is that a, is that a reasonable uh, thing to do, or is it is that just uh, craziness? So I believe that Morningstar actually separates the role the role work from titles, mm -hmm. right? So we can do it. Do I find that particularly useful? In my experience, not much, because okay. I I keep finding. I keep finding organizations where even even though they have managers, people say, um, I don't know how to do that. I only know this little piece of my portfolio. I don't do this, these three other things that should be done by somebody with a management role. Now, there are many ways we could fix that, but I would I would much rather have an organization where we have criteria for our roles. Uh, I talk about a career ladder, which I, I really like Sandberg's idea of the jungle gym. It does not have to be a linear progression um, up and down. It needs to be across. You need, I, I think you actually need people with overlapping 
um, expertise and, and criteria. However, I, as humans, we really like structure. Not everybody likes structure. I happen to be a, a structure-based individual. I have the same thing for breakfast and lunch every single day. I know some some people just got nerves, got, broke out in hives. <laughs> I I I like my routines. They work for me. They don't work for many other people. That's fine. However, enough structure, and maybe we do this with roles, and maybe we do this with managers. We all need enough structure. And I, when I was a senior engineer, I really wanted a promotion. I did not want a promotion to management. I wanted a promotion that recognized my, con my technical contributions to the various products under my influence. I don't know how we get that without a manager role, but maybe I just don't have a good enough imagination. Okay. The What I hear you saying is the idea of people being recognized for the impact they have. Yeah. Uh, and so someone could be a, uh, have more technical impact and and grow and, and um, or they could could take on other organizational dynamics. So what these, this, the job of management and they could have impact in that way. So they're spending more time thinking about the system or they're thinking about even larger pieces of strategy um, and, and then being recognized and rewarded for their contribution to, uh, to, to, to have that impact. But part of the challenge becomes, well, who is it that's assessing that impact? Who, who, who is the person who can, who can see the people's contribution? Because you, you do talk about that challenge in leading and serving others about how do you, how do you manage people's for performance management? How do you uh, uh, assess them for, for um, uh, I'm trying to phrase you as corrective feedback and uh, as, as well as for, for pay changes? Uh, this, this, this challenge of knowing is, is, is one that's difficult, even with managers, even whose job it is to do that. Oh, so the team always, always knows. The team always, always knows. The team understands who is working and who is slacking off. They might not know why. They might, it might appear like somebody is slacking off. Or it might be that they are actually slacking off. And the more, the more people work as, uh, as part of an Agile team, the more transparency they have. So in my experience, the team always knows. And um, one thing I always used to do as a manager was to ask people for their um, their list of accomplishments. I had one-on-ones with people. That was back in the days when I had a one-on-one -on -one every week. Now a manager might not have a one-on-one -on -one except bi-weekly, right? So you, you have 26 times during the year where you can take a note and say, tell me about your accomplishments, mm -hmm. right? Not, not what you did last week, what you accomplished, the outcomes. Um, and I, I find that when, when managers and the people they lead and serve have honest conversations, they are more likely to, to say, here's what I accomplished and here's where I need you. You're, I need your help to do this. So back when I was, um, I was a, a senior tester uh, as I, I was called a senior member of the technical staff and uh, my boss was supposedly in charge of the beta program. He was doing a horrible job at it. So I, <laughs> I said, 
you're making my job more difficult in these three ways. Would you like me to take over the beta program? He said, oh God, yes. I, I really hate doing project management. I said, I'm really good at it. I will do that. And so we, we figured out what was right for each of us. I still needed him to do a whole bunch of lawyerly work. I did not want to get together with the lawyers. However, reaching out to the, the customers, the beta customers, getting testimonials from them, making sure they installed the software, getting, getting their feedback about the product, I could do all of that and I did it really well. So when we met in our one-on-one, -on -one, he, he actually was smart enough to ask me about my outcomes. And I said, here are the outcomes I delivered for the beta project. Here are the outcomes I delivered from my testing. Here's where I'm a little bit stuck. Here's where I need you. And um, was I kind of back leading him? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I was not that good uh, a manager at that point. But I understood what we both wanted for the outcomes of the organization. And having, if you had been subordinate, if you had placated him and just said, oh, okay, great, you know, you're doing fine, everything's good, boss, you know, I want you to give me a promotion, so I'm going to tell you it's all fine, you wouldn't have got the beta program improved the way you did. And you wouldn't have made the career move that you did, which gave you more responsibility, which let you talk about more accomplishments. So I think exactly. That's a beautiful case study of what we keep saying and uh, that you're, you're echoing and that we're echoing in, in your books is is being subordinate isn't going to help you. Being blunt is what's going to help you. Well, blunt in a way they can hear. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so my colleagues and, and the rest of the testing department did not really know what we did because we were not we we did not work together as a team. We were a work group. And so when you have a work group, you might have to have a different way of assessing outcomes. But I think as, if you start asking about outcomes and accomplishments, you get a lot farther. And in um, the one element here I want to come to with this, in both in the conversation and the, the challenge of changing behavior, is all three of the books end in, in a very similar structure. All of them end with a chapter, which to me was the call. And uh, so you, in the first book, you ask, where will you start managing yourself? In the second book, you say, where will you start leading and serving others? In the third book, you say, where will you uh, start leading an innovation organization? And then you ask people, uh, you, you've, the three things that were common, you'd say, assess your behavior, change your behavior first, and you don't have to be perfect. If someone is is going to start changing their behavior, right? So we talk about this this idea because this essentially we come back. What's success for you with these books? I asked you, and you said, well, mostly you want people to read them and 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 to reflect on their behavior. Um, so what if, if 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 people examine their behavior? What how do they? Where would you where would you recommend someone someone start? Someone who's heard this, they say, "Well, these all these ideas sound really exciting. Uh, um, I want to begin." Let's, I want to I want to say here, there's a there should be a bias to action. People, hopefully, our listeners from the podcast know we, we're very much about doing the work. You know, getting folding the piece of paper, recording the conversation. Where does someone start doing the work? 
And of course, the first thing is they go to jrothman.com and they buy <laughs> copies of the books. So, so that's the first thing. <laughs> and once they've got the books, what do they do with them? So even if they went to book one and started with that chapter, I would say um, in book one, the biggest things for me was being able to admit I did not know and I needed help. Hmm. And if, if, if you are a manager and you can start saying those things, that frees other people to also admit that they don't know and that they might need help. So I would start there with managing yourself. And in, in book two, um, I, I would say, how can I create a one-on-one -on -one structure that works for me as an information gathering system and and helps me understand what people are actually accomplishing, not what they're working on, but what they're accomplishing. So I can see what what where they have friction and where they are able to move smoothly through the organization and through the work. And in book three, I would say, um, God, there's so much in book three. Um, <laughs> I would say, do I know my purpose? Do I know why the organization exists? I did not talk a lot about strategy in book three because I, I really, I'm really trying to, to make the books stand on their own and not, not talk about the next book. But I, so many of my clients really do a horrible job on strategy. They don't know why the organization exists. If you could do one thing to lead an innovative organization, you might decide, why does this organization exist? And then if I can go for two, um, <laughs> I'm going to anyway, stop doing the things that don't offer value to why your organization exists. Limit the work as, as an organization. And for me, the way you do that is with management um, teams at all levels. And I'll just say, for, for, there's a lot that falls out of what Joanna just said that she illustrates in the book because some of the issues like performance reviews or estimates or things like that, you eliminate because they're not value add. Uh, and, and so it becomes actually a, a, a very sharp razor that <laughs> cuts away a lot of things that people might be surprised to find. Or in the specialized circumstance where that thing's particularly helpful for your organization, you might keep it. But you you know exactly why you're doing it rather than saying, well, those other people do it. Yeah, well, that's the Spotify model. That's the um, uh, the Teal model. So we're, we're doing what those people do. And the, the cargo cult is what Jeffrey and I have been battling for years and Joanna for even longer than us. And, and I think, Joanna, here you've in this book, I'll just uh, say for our listeners, it's a, it's a great example. I think you have in your book brought in the principles that Amy Edmondson describes in teaming about creating a, a psychological safe culture. You, you've, you have done that in your book because you uh, have said, well, how do you lead for a learning organization? You say that you don't know. You say that you need help. You, you um, assess. You say we're going to do experiments. And you say that you don't need to be perfect. And so you've, you've laid that out uh, for the readers. So hopefully any of our listeners who become readers uh, will feel safe in picking up Joanna's book and understand that she's, uh, it's an invitation to, uh, to, to, to join the world of, of modern management. Okay. 
Well, that's quite a fantastic uh, invitation, which uh, jo Joanna has very kindly written up in three whole books for us. And we could be talking about those books for the, the next 17 episodes, I'm sure, if not the next 52. So uh, I think we're going to have to let Joanna go have some lunch um, because <laughs> she's She's wasting away in front of us, and we've been keeping her. Up. Oh, I wish I was wasting. <laughs> She's dying of hunger. We we can't let her do that. But we're very grateful, Joanna, for your wonderful books, uh, all of which we recommend to our listeners. Uh, there's many, many links in the show notes. I've been taking notes as we go. And uh, Joanna, we really appreciate that you've come on the podcast to discuss these uh, your ideas so uh, so thoroughly and, and helpfully for us. So thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Fantastic. Well, if listeners want to get in touch, first of all, with Joanna uh, to uh, get her books and to talk to her and to hire her for consulting and all the other wonderful things she does, that would be jrothman.com or createadaptablelife.com. That's where you can find all of her writings and thoughts and blog and, and all the other good things. If you're interested in getting in touch with us, that would be conversationaltransformation.com. Jeffrey and I hang out there. We have workshops and links and Slack communities, and you wouldn't believe it, free videos, all kinds of stuff. So find us there. And, of course, come back next week. We'll, maybe we'll have somebody half as exciting as Joanna on, or maybe like we'll exactly <laughs> have been talking about uh, one of our latest stories. So you can find us every week. We're going for 52. Not going to miss any weeks this uh, 2021 if we can manage it. So come back next week. Hit the subscribe button, and you can hear us again. Thanks so much, Jeffrey and Joanna. Thanks, girl. Thank you.